HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Byright, a family-owned San Francisco-grown market. For more information, visit byrightmarket.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. And welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And today we have a very special slice of culinary history. And you'll find out more why I use the word slice in a minute. It's about an American institution, which was a restaurant with no waiters. Many people, probably under the age of 30, might not even know what an automat is, except if they've seen it in movies, and there are plenty of movies where the automat appears as one of the stars. <laughs> the automat is, was one of America's um, beloved institutions, well, particularly in the East, Philadelphia and New York. And it, was, it really said a lot about America's eating habits because... It was a time that America started to relax their eating habits. I mean, also, I think you put it up there with Schraff's in New York, uh, working people going and catching a really quick bite to eat. The automat was the great equalizer, where one could sit at a table with wealthy businessmen or school kids or housewives or, as they said in the 40s, showbiz names. Um, There were communal tables, which now we see in restaurants today. And all you needed was a stack of nickels. So today we're going to be talking about the automat. What is it? The history, the book, and the movie. My guest is Marianne Hardert, and my guests, the two guests, Marianne Hardert first, um, and Lisa Hurwitz, who we'll hear from a little later. Marianne is the great-granddaughter of one of the co-founders of the famous automat, Horn and Hardert. Horn and Hardert made a huge appearance in New York and Philadelphia, and we'll find out about that history. And Marianne is the great-granddaughter who knows a bit about the family history. And not only that, she, well, she is an actor herself and has done a lot of work with children and, and, um, 
and the healthcare systems and also brings theater to the home to the children and healthcare systems but she is now um an actor in her own right and she along with Lorraine Deal co-authored a book um 10 years ago well, about 12 or 15 years ago yeah yeah, yeah 2002. in 2002 right <laughs> um about the history of the automat and some of the recipes it was then um as a celebration of the 100th anniversary so marianne welcome thank you and tell me you are the great granddaughter but the automat business stayed in your family for quite a while can you kind of trace a little bit of that history for me yeah sure um and thank you for inviting me to join you here today um it started with my great-grandfather and joseph horn and I can go into more or less detail in that beginning, as you'd like. Um, and then business, business deals. Yeah, <laughs> I don't right. know if I want. I want to talk about how it affected America's eating habits, okay. but food. We'll get through. No, that. but certainly I want to know about the business. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and then there were really three generations of my family who stayed involved. The Harder um, family. Yeah. Um, Frank's sons, and then for each of them, one of their sons. So the last. Um, family member actually was my dad who was in the business until the early 80s. Hmm. Well, when did the first, well, you, so you go into a little bit of that business partnership um, with Joe Horn. When did the, when, I mean, your great-grandfather was from Germany. Yeah, and he, th- th- his family came, they came over and they were living actually in New Orleans and um, he he was sort of, uh, Joe Horn actually had the restaurant background sort of in his blood already um, and my great-grandfather didn't, but he was sort of an observer of people, and um, they connected uh, in Philadelphia, um, and that was where the first restaurant opened, which was not an automat at that point. It was a, a little cafe, you know, like a seven-seater, a five- or seven-seater, um, and that was in 1888. Mm. And the first automat didn't... Um, come about until 1902 and that was also first in philadelphia so where did this concept come from well uh through a a trip over to germany um and uh where you might still find not you know related automats but the automat technology in use um, over in europe is still going on and um so a fascination with with that and and a drive to sort of bring that to america and figure out a way to Okay, a good jumping point to to explain to some of those young listeners, like our engineer, Liz, (laughs) what what is the technology (laughs) behind the automat? Well, it certainly evolved in its um, bringing it from there to here. It it was originally uh, quite a contraption that was, there was nothing automatic about it, which was sort of a a joke in the beginning, (laughs) you know. Um, It involved several people to get the food from one place in the restaurant to another, um, what it evolved into and what people who remember the restaurant from New York City and Philadelphia remember is this machine that you put in at the time, as you mentioned, a nickel and opened a door and pulled out your meal. And it was all these glass windows. So you could look and find what you wanted. You could actually see the food before you ordered yeah, it. Yeah. And I, I know for people who are used to these kinds of vending machines today, it doesn't seem novel, but there was nothing like that in right, restaurants. Right. And well, and you say the machine, it was it evolved into much more than a machine. It was a whole wall yes. full of glass doors. 
I mean, as a as a, a young child, look at it. Can you imagine a whole wall full of food, <laughs> yeah. and you could choose whatever you wanted? Yeah, and that you know, so many people told those stories of you know, the freedom that they had sometimes only there, you know, where their parents would give them some nickels and they could run and pick what they wanted. And of course there were people behind the windows. Oh, the, um, oh, the wizard of Oz. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, the, it didn't replenish itself. Curtain, right. <laughs> Uh, which, you know, has been played out in films like that touch of minked and so mm-hmm. playfully plays out the role, the, the relationship with behind the windows. But, um, and, and so fresh food was constantly being replaced. So unlike the vending machines you might find now in a, in an office building or structure, there were people replacing the food with fresh, hot or cold food throughout the day as people ate it. Mm. Sorry, there are no more Doritos in this. Yeah. No, there was, there was a, a little woman behind there, and, yeah, you didn't have and to mostly call a women, number. right? Right. <laughs> Who would put that slice? Oh, slice of pie. Pie yeah. was so famous. It was um, a nickel for a cup of coffee and a slice of pie for two nickels, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so where the? Yeah, I think what what made, in my opinion, the the automats um, so successful was the food was really good. Yeah. Yeah. And where was this food prepared? Well, both cities, um, by the time I think I mentioned it, came to New York in 1912. So both cities had what was called a commissary, which was a central location. In New York City, it took up a whole city block um, where the food was prepared. And there was what was called a sample table, where every day executives sat around a table and tasted food, especially new recipes or anything anyone had ever complained about would have to go through the sample table. But so the food was centrally produced. So again, um, it was fresh. People people would say, well, how, how did you, uh, you know, the quality from one restaurant to another? Well, because it was all coming, most of it anyway, from a central place. Yeah, well, actually, I, and I kind of likened it in... in um reading about the commissary and, and the the rule books yes. for the for the <laughs> automats. I likened it to today's, you know, Hamburger University. The McDonalds has a, that all the franchise owners have to go to McDonald University to to learn about that quality control yeah. and to use the same products and and make things. Although the food, we're, we're talking about much better food here. Right. You know, um, cream pies. Oh, I remember there were cream. Oh. I do. Re- I unfortunately, yes, I have to admit, no. I do remember an automat. Not that I was a you know someone who who went and ate there, but went into the automat took, took a look at it, and I do recall having one time purchased something, but then. They rapidly disappeared, but we yeah, didn't. yeah. The last was in the early '90s, and um, but yeah, people have such strong memories and attachments to the food that they remember getting and getting every like the macaroni and cheese and the baked beans and the Salisbury steak and the pies and the, mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and, and interesting because it is as you say, it evokes such memories that um, people. I mean, they the different people and you interviewed to uh, have very very poignant memories yeah. of it, whether they're little kids with a stack of nickels, you know, yeah. getting excited, um, or people who on a real budget who need, I mean, where else could you get a full meal for a few nickels? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and you could stay there all day and, and some people didn't even get a meal. They would get the hot water and, you know, there's stories of people making soup out of ketchup and hot water, <laughs> or you get one cup of tea and sort of you nurse, know, it. nurse that all day. And, and that was a place that allowed that, and, and so they didn't kick you out. They weren't no. hovering over your table, and they didn't kick you out. And, no, no, and 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 the tables were all communal. I yeah. mean, if you, um, not unlike a lot of delis or cafes today, if you see an open chair or two at a table, you say, "Hey, is anyone else sitting here? You know, you want to sit, and I want to sit and have my sandwich." Right. 
but this was the norm. Right? Yeah. And, you know, particularly during the Depression, it was acceptable to have uh, all kinds of different people there. And that was the fun also was you didn't I mean, celebrities would go, uh, you know, uh, business people would go, as you mentioned in the beginning, all kinds of people went. So it was it was a very was egalitarian yeah. environment. In it was way. quick, uh, kind of anonymous and, yeah. and you know, in cheap. Yeah. yeah. Quick. Yeah, um, it, but one thing I know that that kind of um, intrigues me. Well, it got to be known for its coffee, uh, the automats, because the coffee. There's a little story behind the coffee, how they made it and changed it often, and tested it constantly. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, well, and you mentioned the rule book, so there were very specific. I mean, multiple step directions on managing the coffee and. Um, changing it if it hadn't, you know, if, if it during low, you know, slow periods and, um, and the same, they did that with their soups as well. I mean, they were very particular, um, hmm. about managing the, the quality well, of the, it kept the quality of the food up. Yeah. Well, the, supposedly the coffee came from these spouts that were dolphin heads. Yes. What's the story <laughs> behind the dolphin heads? That also, I think that may have been, um, Joe Horn's, uh, con- contribution. And again, I think from a trip over to Europe and he was inspired and but they you know they, there was no attention to detail and that's a perfect example like because who would think you know yeah. to serve coffee but the the restaurants that was the other thing about them is they were beautiful many of them um well just architecturally the brass, right? the yeah. brass and the glass alone yeah you know, sparkling were, well you know that's what somebody mentioned in one of the articles that um the the glass made everything appear clean yeah and this was a time when there were some pretty suspect little food dives right hanging around in the major cities right? <laughs> right so everything looks sparkling and clean i'm sure there were a lot of rules in that book about yeah wiping them out and i think especially in the earlier when you were mentioning women coming into restaurants the the, the restaurants that had the big windows you know you could sort of check it out before you went in see if it was safe right? yeah yeah well actually when it first came in 19 and first appeared in new york in 1912 mm-hmm. philadelphia 1902 uh, there were very few places women could yeah. go unaccompanied right it was it was and just, they just wouldn't even have thought of it it was kind of taboo in a way yeah too. You know, yeah they, they didn't have the ice cream parlors there were a few left you know but um not not a lot of places for women to go and, exactly and, and women you know there were working women yeah believe it or not yeah. yeah um i actually i had read that those dolphin heads just to, came from i think they were replicas of something found in pompeii it was a pump. I knew it was Italy, so I wasn't yeah, sure. I think yeah. I think I read that someplace. But, found, yeah. but I thought, why? How in the world did that I happen? Yeah, go figure, <laughs> right? Uh, and it really was um, not unlike cafeterias. And they, didn't they have a, a hot buffet table as they, well at one time? It evolved. They did eventually have restaurants that were more cafeterias, and you could get waitress service. You could sit at a counter. Um, so some of them had also the automat windows, and some of them were just cafeterias. And they so they sort of evolved, and eventually they had Burger King, a Burger King franchise in New York City, um, as they sort of converted the real estate which was as you could imagine incredibly valuable yes. from yeah. automats into something considered more modern oh so they kind of yeah. died by the <laughs> 1990s well in inflation i mean you know had to have a lot of nickels and they, yeah. they had to convert the, the doors to quarters by then i mean that was a problem when yeah. you know when the cup of coffee started 
costing 10 cents. Yeah, it was a huge controversy when the coffee, the price of coffee went up, which I think was in the fifties or when it first, uh, well, it's, it's, you know, sadly they, they left us in the last one closed in 91, but they, they do remain, they remain a wonderful exhibit was at the New York public library on lunch that Laura Shapiro did a lot of research on the automat and and a beautiful job lunch then. And, um, and they have been, um, they are actually sort of a relic of Americana, and there is an automat in the Smithsonian Institute. And very soon, we're going to have another way to remember these automats. Yes, I Automat, hope so. the movie, coming up after we take a short break. Listening to Spreading Honey by the California Honey Drops. And this is a taste of the past. You gotta do what you wanna when you get up in the morning. Cause it won't be long before you're dead and gone. Yeah, no, there ain't no telling. Yeah, we all just bet. Just plan our hands. Till the last stand. So tell your mama you Today's program is brought to you by Byright, a family-owned San Francisco-grown market. For more information, visit buyrightmarket.com. Buyright is a family-owned and San Francisco-grown market that is passionate about creating community through food. From organic farm direct local produce, sustainably raised meats, and artisan cheeses, to food-friendly wines, house-made foods, and dinners, Buyright is an essential San Francisco destination for any food lover or cook. And no trip is complete without a visit to the renowned Buyright Creamery and Bake Shop for a scoop of salted caramel ice cream. Now celebrating 75 years in the Mission District of San Francisco. Visit buyrightmarket.com to learn more. Buyright is a proud business member of Heritage Radio Network, supporting good food media from coast to coast. Well, we have had the automat history, the automat book, and now we are hopefully soon to have the automat movie. Lisa Hurwitz, who is a director and producer of the automat coming movie, uh, is she has a background in arts administration, and this movie is. Um, a project that is kind of still in the works and there is in fact a Kickstarter program to to help support it and Lisa is joining us from the West Coast by phone. Lisa, are you there? I am here, Linda. Thank you so much for having me and for doing an episode on Automat. Well, welcome to this to this show. Um I I'm very excited for this movie and there is a, a teaser on that Kickstarter page, a teaser of the trailer and it really it's a it's a documentary, right? It is. It is a documentary about the life of Horn and Hardart, which is, as far as I'm concerned, um, one of the most fascinating restaurant companies that we've seen in America and perhaps the most important one uh, that New York or Philadelphia in particular have ever seen. Interesting. Um, it, this The Automat, as I had mentioned earlier before the break, um, has been memorialized in in as a backdrop in many other movies, Hollywood sets, and even in the theater. 
Uh, what inspired you to embark upon this project of making a documentary about it? Well, you mentioned earlier how the Automat was a star of these films, which I, I appreciated because the Automat, for me, uh, it just has so much personality and uh, character. And uh, it's for someone like myself who never actually experienced it firsthand. Uh, when I when I learned about the Automat, um, I was extremely fascinated by the concept of it. I first came across uh, Born in Hard Art and the Automat in an academic journal, actually. I uh, really enjoyed the experience of eating in a cafeteria in college. There was a social element to it that I hadn't really experienced before, and uh, eating together with other people and uh, meeting new people and having discussions, it was just something that uh, meant a lot to me. And so I began researching the history of the cafeteria in America, and I decided after uh, visiting the Robert F. Burns collection at the New York Public Library, which is the Horn and Hard Art uh, collection, uh, after I saw how immaculately the company had preserved its history and what an abundance of material or visual material that there was that um, I absolutely needed to uh, make this film. And frankly, I was surprised that someone hadn't already done it because uh, Horn and Hard Art is really such an important part of uh, New York Indeed. and its story. And uh, it's, it's beloved, as you mentioned before, it is a beloved institution, which is very rare for people to... Uh, feel towards a, a corporation. Right. That's what it was. You know, it was a money-making corporation, but it 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 had a, a really large positive impact on, you know, the people of the city. Right. And and I really like um, how you brought up the um, the communal spirit of eating and how cafeterias do that, um, how we've brought back in many restaurants today the communal tables, whether you actually turn and talk to your neighbor or not. I mean, there is that feeling of, of communal activity and conviviality uh you also there's somebody else involved in in um in the production of this um documentary and uh, i feel perhaps we should mention him as well you said you did a lot of research and it's alec schuldiner is it schuldiner how do you say his schuldiner name? schuldiner okay schuldiner and and Alec authored a Ph.D. dissertation while he was at Cornell in 2001 called Trapped Behind the Automat. And the dissertation is a bit of a comparative analysis between three large restaurant corporations that really have utilized technology uh, as a part of the service that they provide. And so it's, uh, it's Horn and Hardart, White Castle, and then a, a company in the Netherlands that still uh, provides automat machines to this day called SIBO. And uh, Alex's dissertation really has been the foundation of, of everybody's uh, writing uh, about Horn and Hard Art. Uh, he really was the first person to put the history together, and it's allowed, you know, it, it helped Marianne write her book, it's helping me write my movie, and uh, so I'm just really grateful. I think we're all grateful that Alex has provided this for us, and it really is a service. Right. I mean, he talks about technological systems um, and, and their use in, in American restaurants. And it's funny because, as Marianne said, there was really nothing, it's called an automat, but there's really nothing automatic about it, but the technology was, was so unique, putting a coin in and turn that allowed the knob to turn and open the door. Automat, actually, I think automatos is a German word, um, 
that that means uh, you know self propelling or self self you know using. So this indeed this was such a an innovation in American restaurants in any restaurants for that matter. What um, is there a compelling point or or a particular view that you are trying to convey in this documentary? Well, for me, it really comes down to something that you mentioned in your intro about the automat being the great equalizer, and I think that's extremely important and relevant today. You know, there's a lot of topics and themes that come up in the film that are relevant today. We talk about uh, labor and uh, restaurant workers who, back in the 1920s, were fighting for living uh, wages and better working conditions, and the same thing is happening today. We talk about women who are... uh, still fighting today for uh, equal rights in the workplace, uh, the widening gap between the rich and the poor. But for me, the the fact that there used to be this place that was good enough for everybody to go to, and uh, and it was they provided the finest, and it was good enough for the rich or the poor, and they could sit next to each other and have a conversation, I think that's something that we really ought to think about. Um, yeah. And we ought to, I'm not saying necessarily bring back the automat, but we really can... Um, Food really brings people together, and so I think that the fast food uh, that has replaced the automat, I don't know that it necessarily uh, is the best solution, and uh, I think we still have a ways to go right. uh, and, culturally. Yeah. And hearing from Marianne about these the commissaries, I mean, it seemed like seems like such a sensible, doable way to you know to provide food to to a lot of different places, which they do at at uh, delis and and little. Uh, bodegas that have you know the the salad bars, they do have a central commissary that supplies you know decent food to them. But you know you mentioned the um, the 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 budgetary um, importance to the working class, and it's interesting because I, I don't know whether it's the book or somebody um, in maybe doing a the program at the Smithsonian or something did uh, interviews with a lot of people. Uh, and one of them was Dick Clark. We all remember Dick Clark. Dick Clark, when he was young, he first moved to Philadelphia. He said he lived at the Automat. They had the greatest chocolate milk. And he said when he moved to Philadelphia, he apportioned less than $2 a day to eat on. And the Automat was the only place that he could do that. So it's interesting that, that this was, you know, you could have a fixed budget. And you knew because you knew what, you know, how many nickels you had to put in that machine. You knew exactly what you were going to spend. And that was one way that people could really budget their their money. And you didn't have to tip anybody, so that made yeah. it also really right. clear that you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, and the um, in the, the the documentary, are you going to? Is there going to be any um, mention? Do you plan on the commissaries? Do you do you cover that at all? Absolutely. The commissary was one of uh, Horn and Hardart's many important contributions to the American restaurant industry. It really pioneered uh, this system in which you prepare large quantities of food in uh, one place. And, of course, Horn and Hardart did it differently because uh, the, the network that it was extending to was much smaller. You know, there was, as Marianne mentioned, there was a commissary in New York and one in Philadelphia, and they were able to... Uh, bring the food several times a day to the automat, and it was fresh. It was not frozen. So today, uh, food has to travel further distances, especially with large uh, fast food chains. So it's not as fresh. But 
the commissary was a way for Horn and Hardart to provide, one of the ways they were able to provide food cheaply. So uh, that helped keep down the, the cost for the customer as well, and that was one of the most important parts about the automat. Uh, Marianne mentions uh, in her interview that she did for the film that everyone can afford it, and that was one of the reasons that people uh, remember it with such reverence today. It was it was something that every it was something very fine that everyone could have. Right, and I, I, to me, I still um, I just still get that image of you know a, a little kid with big eyes and seeing this wall full of food. <laughs> And under these, you know, shiny glass and brass boxes and just, you know, being able to, you know, to go in and choose it, whatever you wanted. It was, that was really a treat. Now, here's the thing. You had to have nickels. So how did one go about getting those nickels? And who were the nickel throwers? Okay, ladies, who wants to answer? <laughs> Lisa? Well, the <laughs> nickel throwers... Um the way that we kind of uh, fondly remember them are uh, women, but I know for a fact that men were nickel throwers as well because uh, Norris Horn, who's uh, the great nephew of uh, of the founder, he he tells a story about how uh, for a day he had to uh, he was being trained in a lot of different uh, aspects of the company when he was uh, in college, and one of them was being a nickel thrower and you know by the end of the day you would you can feel what uh what two doll what um you can feel 20 nickels in your hand and you know exactly how many it is so uh but anyways the nickel throwers were the, the employees of the automat that sat behind kiosks and they converted uh the customers quarters and later dollars into nickels so that you could uh put the food into the slots and the nickel throwers were as far as i'm concerned one of the most uh Neat uh, characters at the at the automat. Hmm. Interesting. There's so many, so many interesting, wonderful aspects of of the automat. And uh, what I want to do is um, remind people that they can. Uh, I think the book is still in publication. Your book, right? Um, you can find it. I think on Amazon. It's hard to find. The book is called The Automat. That's pretty easy. And but it's. It's also available as a Kickstarter reward for ah, uh, that's the most important and, that's, and that <laughs> and that was the next thing I wanted to do is, is Lisa could you yeah. give could you give the listeners the um, the web address for the Kickstarter page? Absolutely, the Kickstarter which is running until March fifteenth is automatmovie.com, and Marianne's book uh, The Automat has been one of our most popular uh, backer rewards. So yeah. we're we're really uh, grateful for the opportunity to be offering that as a reward. Well, it is such a fantastic project, and and I, for one, am really hoping that you know you reach your goal and that we can get this this movie off the ground because I can't wait to see all the wonderful interviews and images and and certainly. Oh, I know what I want to ask right at the end. What, um, Lisa, and I know Marianne, you can remember a few. What are some of the more famous movies? Um, and I imagine they're from the 30s and 40s, or um, that that had vi- uh, images of the automat in them. Now, Marianne, you had mentioned that touch of mink. That touch of mink, right? Lisa, any come to mind? Well, my favorite is probably uh, Easy Living. With um, the, it's. I mean, it's the same. It's the same story in many of these films where you have like a young female coming into the automat, kind of uh, down, and then her 
her situation turns around because something happens. She meets someone at the automat. Right. So it's that's probably my favorite one. Well, hopefully soon we're going to have Automat the documentary. And I, and I so. thank you both for joining me. This is such a wonderful, as I said in the beginning, such a wonderful slice of Americana, a slice of, of culinary history. And it is indeed the great equalizer, the Automat. Thank you so much for joining me on A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>